Welcome to the education game, the spot for highly engaged parents. And if you are a parent who has a child in pre-K through high school, then I need you to stop whatever you're doing. Just stop and listen. If you're driving in a car, I need you to pull over to the side of the road, right? Park in a gas station, someplace safe, but I need you to give me your full attention. If you're a grandparent in the middle of cooking your family's favorite dinner, then I need you to turn off the fire and just have a seat for a few minutes and I want you to listen. Because what we're gonna talk about is something far more important. We're gonna talk about your child or your grandchild's education. We're going to discuss the dreams that you have for your kids. My name is Matt Barnes and I wanna start this podcast with a story. It is the story that I go back to whenever there are problems in education and, and I get discouraged. It's the story about a young woman who I will call Kelly. Now I met Kelly on the campus of Princeton University, one of the eight Ivy League schools in the nation. And for those of you who may not know, these are the most elite schools in the country. Get this, most of these schools cost anywhere from $65,000 a year to $75,000 a year to attend. But Kelly was one of the few lucky students who were not only accepted to one of these universities, but she had her entire tuition paid for, room and board, Books, even flights back and forth from her home were paid for. Having sat on a couple of university boards now, I have heard how desperate selective universities are for highly prepared students like Kelly. They're just looking for folks like her, but rarely do they find them. They don't find them because people like Kelly are usually not competitive. They do not compete in high school, and therefore they're not academically prepared for the next level. I mean, here's some data for you right now. Only one in five students in Harris County, this is the metropolitan area that encompasses Houston, if you're not from this area, but only one in five of kids complete a two-year, a four-year, or even a certification trade like welding or plumbing. Only one in five have those skills uh, by the time they're 25 years old. Out of almost a million kids, one in five are entering adulthood with the credentials they're going to need to work in this 21st century. And if you're low income black or brown, guess what? That number drops to one in 10. If you're a black or brown boy, it's more like one in 20. This is the education system that parents are so desperately hoping will get back to normal after COVID goes away. Well, this show, this show is not about getting things back to normal because normal is broken and I'm tired of watching normal, tired of watching normal get protected when kids are moving through uh, on a conveyor belt to an adult life that will grind them up if they are not prepared. So here's one more stat, and then we're going to begin to frame more about a solution. If I were to ask you how many third graders in the Harris County, again, Houston area that are reading on grade level, what would you say? Those of, us list, those of you listening from Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, Miami, I know there's some folks in St. Louis and in New York, the numbers aren't different. So I want you to think about your own context How many third graders in your city's school are reading on grade level? Some of you would say 90%, 80% maybe. You'd be wrong. Some of you might hedge a little bit and say, "Uh, 70%? No, the actual number is 40%. Four out of 10 third graders in Houston and almost every metropolitan area in the country are only four out of 10 are reading on grade level. And let me remind you why that matters. Because before third grade, children are expected to learn how to read. But after third grade, they're expected to read to learn. 
That means if your child is not reading by third grade, your child is not going to be strong. They will fall further and further behind each year thereafter. And these are facts that are not in dispute. I'd like you to stew on that a little bit. Consider the implications when that many kids are not mastering a basic skill. Okay, enough with the bad news. Because this show is actually about positives. This, this show is about turning things around and back to the story of Kelly. I heard about Kelly when we were doing some work a uh, few years ago in her school district. And it's funny, when I first learned about her being at Princeton, I, I, I thought there must have been some mistake. Because kids from her part of Texas do not go to Princeton. They don't go to college. They don't go anywhere. <laughs> they stay put. But as luck would have it, it actually wasn't luck. I believe it was a God thing. I actually had plane tickets to go to Princeton for a meeting with a foundation that I was a part of before I learned about Kelly. And so later that month, I was up in Princeton and asked Kelly's mom if I could connect with Kelly and meet with her to interview her about her experience and and her journey. And I asked her, how in the world did she get to Princeton? Now, she giggled a little bit because she had that question asked to her a bunch of times. And so she answered it how she has always answered it before. She said her ninth grade science teacher went to Princeton and he inspired her to consider applying. He also probably played some role in helping her complete the applications, things like that, right? But by the time Kelly was in ninth grade, she was a standout student. She was extremely mature, responsible, and her science teacher obviously saw that Kelly had the academic preparation to be considered by a place like Princeton. So I asked Kelly... What did you do differently to be so well-positioned in ninth grade that your science teacher would even notice you, right? And she had not really thought about that question. So I got more specific. I said, all right, Kelly, think back until you were in, say, you know, second or third or fourth grade. Tell me, tell me what happened when you came home from school each day. Tell me exactly what happened. And she smiled and she, as she thought back and she uh, remembered and she said that, uh, you know, every day after school, Her mom would make her a snack, and then she would do her homework. And I said, well, wait a second. So that was your routine? Is that something you did sometimes? How often did you do this? She said, every day. I said, every day? I mean, every day? Making sure that she didn't, you know, misspeak. And she, you know, nodded her head and said, yeah, every single day, this is what we did. And I said to her, you know, second graders don't usually have homework. What did you do when you didn't have homework. And so she smiled and she said, well, when we didn't have homework, um, my mom had me read or do math facts. Those are the two things that we would do before I could go out to play or whatever else I wanted to do that would happen every day after school. And I said, wait, are you sure this happened every day? And she said, yes, every day. Long story short is we talked for two hours. I learned about how a family who was not well-educated, who did not have much money, but they had a, had a mindset that allowed that parent to recognize that she could influence her daughter's life and her daughter's academics. At no point in the conversation did it seem that that parent was going to look to the school or look to their pastor or look to the softball coach and say, hey, it's your job to make sure my kid gets ready. She took ownership, even though she had all these barriers and strikes against her. And did I mention, I probably didn't mention this yet that Kelly's mom did not speak English. Didn't even have a grade school education, but she learned the habits 
that lead to academic performance. And she made sure that she established that in her home. And there's a whole conversation about how she learned them. And that is what this show is about. Moms like Kelly, and I've met hundreds of them over the years, moms who say, I'm not going to allow my child to go the way of so many before them. I'm going to now take a stand for my child and I'm going to ask for help. And so those families, this is the spot for you. For you, I want you to call in and ask us. And I say us, you'll be meeting my uh, co-partner in this, the work, a guy named Scott Van Beck, longtime educator. But when we talk about the education game, we're talking about thinking about education as strategically as a head coach of a football team thinks about their work. Where do we want to be in a year? Where do we want to be in six months? What are the resources I need to have around my star players to make sure they're ready for their future? That's what we're talking about on this show. I would now like to invite families to go to the website of theeducationgame.com, click on the button that says free help, and schedule time to have a conversation with me about your specific situation. So that is your open invitation to schedule time with us. Again, theeducationgame.com. Look for the button that says free help and click on it and you will be directed to schedule time with me and I look forward to speaking with you. Now, I'm going to take a moment to thank the sponsor for this show, Community Health Choice, which is an insurance company focusing on kids and families. Now, why would an insurance company support or sponsor a conversation about education? Well, the answer is because it's all connected. Child's physical health, their mental health, their academic health, it's all connected. And Community Health Choice realizes that families are central to the health of a child, whether that is in school, whether that is in the medical environment. So thank you, Community Health Choice, for sponsoring this show. And thanks for your leadership in the community as well. So as I mentioned, I am working with a great partner here, um, Scott Van Beck, who's now on the Education Game team, and we'll get to know Scott in a moment. Uh, I'm just super excited to have him on board. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Glad uh, glad to be part of the uh, Education Game. Can't wait to uh, uh, to get started with the work. Definitely, definitely. So Scott and I, for the last, I don't know, what is it? It's been multiple years. We were sitting at uh, the House of Pies. We had our own little uh, booth where we would sit and we would talk and we'd talk about education and and uh, we have so many similar ideas and complimentary uh, uh, experiences, I think. And so, Scott, I would like to, you know, we haven't really introduced myself, but I'd like to start with introducing you and then I can tell a little bit about myself. I've just been preaching this whole time so far. <laughs> so, so, Scott, first off, give me like the, give me the 30-second version of like, your experience and and why the heck would you be involved with this little uh, weird little startup that we're doing here around parents? Well, first of all, you forgot to tell the audience that uh, when we'd walk into House of Pies, if that booth wasn't available, we would get mightily upset. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, so right Right by the bathroom, great, great spot for a booth. Yeah, especially for a (laughs) a mid-aged guy like me. Very close to the bathroom. 
the, the skinny about me. Uh, I worked uh, in Houston for 35 years, 25 uh, for the Houston Independent School District. Uh, I was one of uh, Abe Saavedra's uh, region superintendents. I had 60 schools on the west side of uh, Houston, uh, about uh, 54,000 kids. Uh, then I left the district, uh, tried to reform from outside in instead of inside, and uh, went to Houston A-plus Challenge, uh, led that group for 10 years. Hold on, Scott. Talk about what the what Houston A-plus Challenge is. I don't know if everybody knows that. Yeah, well, so Houston A-plus Challenge has been around for, oh, probably 25 years now. And uh, it is basically a, uh, a, a Houston nonprofit that just works to help schools get better. And uh, they do it with uh, working with principals and classroom teachers. Uh, after 10 years there, uh, what I saw was uh, we can help continue schools to try to get better. Um, but what I noticed was we better get busy about recreating or, yeah, I, I guess recreating a learning system um, that uh, isn't part of the current school and, and district makeup. Yeah, yeah. It's an ecosystem that is in need of some significant change. Well, you know, so, man, so, uh, uh, a guy named Andy Smerick uh, wrote something. Uh, this has been years ago, but it really stuck with me. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, what he wrote was, the urban school district cannot be repaired. We must figure out something to replace it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, look at the data. In the opening of this episode, I was talking a little bit about the data, about how few kids, particularly in urban contexts, are reading, right? We're looking at 40% of kids reading on level right now in third grade. And, and that's, that's, been, that's been kind of steady for what, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Well, I'll give you a statistic that's uh, more uh, morbid than that one. I, I checked the national report card data, the NAEP data, National Assessment of Econ uh, Educational Progress. And this is given to kids across the country uh, for the last, oh, I don't know, 50 years. Uh, I looked at the data in 1984 when I started teaching. And then I looked at the data when I left HISD in 2008. And guess what uh, that line showed uh, based upon that data? flat totally since 84 flat, 84 to 2008 now wow. if that is not you know a kick in you know where um for somebody that thinks they're making the difference yeah and so you know when i saw that data i was like brother there's got to yeah, be we got to start yeah i mean there, there's got to be something different so and that brings us to kind of the reason for this show right so we're trying to get directly to parents to alert them on some of these very issues um, in this space of coronavirus, right? When, when now the power differential has shifted, now parents are making decisions. Um, I've heard some parents say, I can't wait until this all gets back to normal. And I, I cringe a little bit when I hear that because, as you described, normal doesn't work for a large percentage of students. Yeah, I, I think actually uh, there was something going on before COVID. And what I think was, uh, no matter what level of uh, income uh, you were as a parent, uh, there were more and more parents that were seeing work come home 
from school. They were seeing their kids come home from school and they weren't happy with what they were seeing. Um, and now uh, we're in a 100 year uh, pandemic. And uh, so what the pandemic has done, it's just not done it in education, it's done it across other sectors, but it has exposed every weakness in our public educational system. Hmm. Um, so much so that even if parents knew before the pandemic that things weren't great, uh, they still had the opportunity to put their kids on a school bus or walk them down to the neighborhood school or send them yeah. across town to the, to the yeah. magnet school. Um, I think more and more parents are seriously reconsidering both on a safety level, but also, especially what they saw come home from schools last spring, uh, from a, a learning level. I, I don't think they're sold on on sending their kids back. And and honestly, I don't think they should be sold. Yeah, yeah, we've we've heard that in some of the conversations we've had with families. I mean, how many of them are saying, "Gosh, I want to do something different." If the kids are in my home, I don't I don't want to have to. You know, the the parent who I've been quoting this parent for weeks now, the parent who said, I, now that they're at home, I want to change the emphasis from a focus on grades and completion to a focus on creativity and investigation. And, and so, you know, these are the shifts that families have long wanted in many cases, and now they're feeling some empowerment to at least try in some ways. Well, language is, is uh, important, right? So um, the language of school oftentimes is not the language of learning. Mm. And um, what I mean by that is, uh, you know, we could take the rest of the show and talk about, you know, the difference in, in, in that statement. But I'll just give you one example. And we've talked to parents about this. You know, when you go to school, uh, time is the constant and learning is the variable. So, you know, unless you've got tutoring or you've got detention or you've got after school activities, most, school, most kids are going to come to school at eight o'clock and leave around three o'clock. And how much they learn during that time period is really on them. Yeah. Um, because contractually, teachers are going to show up and they're going to teach their seven hours and 45 minutes. And then, you know, they're going to go home and check papers. I, I get that. Um, but for kids, that, that, that time, time is so essential, right? Yeah. And yeah. so what we really need to do is we need to flip that. Time needs to be the variable and learning needs to be the constant. Right. So now learning doesn't just happen during certain set hours or certain, you know, periods for math, but learning can happen throughout, which, which really, Scott, requires a rethinking of how the home is structured, right? If we're, if we're thinking about time being um, a constant, I'm sorry, a variable now, now we're, we're, we're talking about learning on the weekend. We're talking about we're learning in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, like opportunities to learn all throughout the day, right? Yeah, well... And, and let's, let's don't forget about the workplace. 
So I think the home is going to have to change. I also think the workplace, you know, if, if workplaces are interested in keeping their, their good employees and keeping a high morale uh, about the organization, uh, I think workplaces are going to have to start thinking. So how are, how are we going to help employees deal with the fact that they have an eight to three job uh, that they're at home doing. Oh, and by the way, there are three kids sitting at, at mommy's table as she's, you know, working as a call center, you know, uh, employee. And yeah, she's got to figure out how to get those kids learning. Right. Well, and that goes back to some of the other conversations we've had with some corporate partners who are asking that question, like, what do they do? to help their families, um, you know, it, at minimum reduce the anxiety level, but also to create a, a plan that works with the parent, with the child, and with their work context. Yeah, and, and I, I applaud those uh, corporates and, and those businesses that are starting to ask those questions uh, because yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, um, I, I just think like employees are going to value that so much. Uh, the, the, the loyalty is really, really going to run deep uh, inside of those it's, companies. It's, it's kind of a new spin on work-life balance, isn't it? Yeah. Right. It's not just uh, having some free time in the evenings and on weekends to balance your, your work, but it's also having some space during the day to balance a new educational demand and, and again, a new educational opportunity for those families that are looking at this uh, um you know, unfortunate dynamic of coronavirus and saying, gosh, this could actually be a, a good thing if we if we structure it right. Yeah. Well, you, you remember uh, when Google came up with Google time, uh, which oh, is yeah. about 10 percent of an employee's yep. con- uh, contracted time, they could pretty much go out and, and create. I think yep. this is going to be the new Google time. And that That's is how is the workplace going to be able to help employees balance mm-hmm. their responsibilities to that business, but also the responsibilities to that employee's children. Well, you know, again, as we've talked to a few companies about this, they are they're they're wrestling with it, right? So that's a that's a positive dynamic. You know, my my worry, Scott, though, is um, that a lot of folks are trying to bide their time. That there's a hope that you know coronavirus goes away. There's a vaccine. Maybe there's uh, herd immunity sets in and we don't have to think about this anymore. And as we've been talking to parents, we're trying to help them understand there's a short-term problem, coronavirus, a new restructuring of, of learning. But then there's this long-term problem, which is regardless of what coronavirus is doing, we still have to create new structures to help children succeed uh, and to help children learn. And that is fundamentally a long-term solution or long-term answer to a problem that has persisted for, you know, for decades. So let's think about it this way. Probably what's going to happen in the workplace is um, when people have the opportunity to go back into these places, um, they're probably not all going to go back there at at least as much time as they did pre-pandemic. Why would we think that schools are going to be any different than the workplaces? 
So I think you're like spot on, man. I like, I think that this is going to change. It's not going to go back to the way it is. And that's, Oh, by the way, if we come up with a vaccine that's successful and we don't have any other pandemics, we don't have any other viruses to, to deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wait, so make sure I'm understanding you here. So you're saying that uh, uh, any work environment, every work environment is going to need to struggle with these questions, not just, uh, you know, not just the corporate America, but, but actual schools themselves, because they've got teachers who have kids, right? And they're going to need to figure out how to make that work with their own kids. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes. And there is a fluidity to all of this now, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, yeah. um, you know, I was just listening to, uh, the uh, head of Southwest airlines and, uh, business travel is down 70%. Yeah. Um, wow. and, uh, uh, Southwest basically said, we don't think we're ever getting that business back. Wow. So what I think superintendents and school boards need to start thinking about is, um, when it so-called gets back to normal, are you expecting all of your passengers, i.e. learners Mm. to come back into your space just like wow. February of 2020? I don't think so. Well, Scott, I mean, <laughs> uh, based on our interactions with hundreds of families over the last couple of months, there is no doubt that families are, some of them are really starting to enjoy the flexibility that has come up. Some students are like, are exploding in their creative creativity and their interests, right? Um, in their reading, like they just have space to do things that they weren't able to do before. And I'm hard pressed to imagine families that can kind of make it work saying, I'm sorry, son, sorry, daughter, you got to go back to the model where you don't have to, you don't have the opportunity to choose what you want to learn about. You don't have the opportunity to create or just to sit and think, um, you've got to go back to the school. Yeah. The, uh, again, we've, the genie's out of the bottle. Uh, yeah, and I'll tell you a quick right. story uh, about the genie get, getting out of the bottle. Uh, so, as you know, uh, when I was at uh, Houston A Plus Challenge, uh, we launched a uh, personalized learning lab school. Right. And uh, it was a three-year project, 11 to 13-year-olds. So, all of those kids over those three years are going to go back into traditional high schools because we didn't have a high school component. It was just basically a action research project. We wanted to see how we did with these 50, 11 to 13 year olds. You know, uh, all three years and it got worse and worse, uh, the more self-directed those kids became in their learn uh, with their learning. When they went back into traditional high schools, mm-hmm. it, it was like, it was like the high schools were speaking Martian. You know, uh, like they would call us up and say, um, the, the teacher won't tell me what I'm supposed to be learning. She, yeah. You know, she's up in the room lecturing to me. I, I don't need to be lectured. She just needs to tell me what I need to learn. And I know how to go uh, about learning. Go about doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So this is now getting into the idea of independent learners, Right. Uh, you know, kids who do not need someone to hover over them or do not need someone to 
uh, instruct them on every step, those learners can be given a target and they will progress towards that target on their own in the ways that make sense for them at the times that make sense for them. Yeah. Um, and when when that child now is put back, put back into a, uh, a more restricted environment, there's there's pushback, right? Well, yeah. And, and, and I think one of the reasons why um, schools think that things aren't going to change is that parents don't really know how to do this yet. Yeah. But once yeah. they learn how to do it, once they learn how talented they are, uh, once they learn how to access other talent, you know, mm. how they use uh, learning space way different than schools do, how, they, uh, how they're going to use time differently, um, right. then I think it's going to be a different game. I, I think there's going to be a lot of parents, poor parents, middle class, rich parents that are going to say, you know what? Uh, you know, let's start with the poor parent. Uh, I don't really have to send my kid back into a toxic situation. Mm-hmm. My kid can stay with me and he's going to do just fine. The rich parent is going to start looking and saying, why am I spending $20,000 a year when I have figured out how to do this? Let's say at $10,000 a year. Yeah. Or less, right? Or less. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's um, I I put a blog post out a couple of weeks ago that talked about the unbundling of education, and that's the idea that you know we used to go to school to get all these pieces of of uh, of education, you know, sports and you know math curriculum, et cetera, et cetera. But now, as families are out in the uh, what in the you know on the internet, they're finding access to a lot of this stuff at a fraction of the cost, far more convenient, far more engaging to the child. And by the way, I'd like to come back to this question about student engagement in a second. Um, and, and so again, like parents are seeing, boy, I could get this here. I could get this, this other idea someplace else. Maybe I don't need to go to the school for all of this. Maybe I don't need for the wealthy families to pay to receive all this and universities are having the same dynamic happening with them. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I've been really involved with some university work in the past. So, um, yeah, this is a different mode. So let's take a few minutes and we're going to start closing this up, but let me ask you, Scott, student engagement. That is one of these questions that I think is a, um, it's, it's almost, almost never talked about, right. That, that kids have, things that they are interested in. And when they are given the freedom and the space to explore those things, they learn it so much faster. It becomes not just learning for a grade, but they're learning it because it's something that they're interested about. And in my surveys of the families that have contacted us, 76% of the families say that their kids are disengaged at some level uh, from education. So tell me about how, how, do, how does the system, how does the educational system or the school system view student engagement? Well, now, Matt, uh, you're starting to ask me to tell the secrets of schools. And I, I, Better I, you than me, Scott. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know. Like if I start telling some of the secrets, you know, I might have to go into the witness protection program. Um, <laughs> well, you already moved to Vermont. No, I know. I know. I, <laughs> people would have a hard time finding me, especially, right. you know, like, now I'm in Minnesota at our lake house in the basement. Yes. Uh, this would be a tough place to find me. So let me share. 
what's happened in, in schools, uh, and it, I, I think it goes back to uh, 1984, a nation at risk, just scared the bejesus out of the country. And states... And again, uh, just to interrupt, the na- a nation at risk was the report that was commissioned under the Reagan administration to analyze school function, and it came back with a report saying that schools, that we're essentially losing the race in education, Right. Yeah, and I think what it, what it also said was that the uh, the crisis in schools was uh, commensurate with a uh, uh, with an impending military invasion of the country, uh, foreign power, yeah. right? Yeah, yep. Um, yep. So everyone gets freaked out, uh, and states uh, start um, setting standards. I, I have no problem with standards, uh, but then they create uh, divisions of curriculum. Um, uh, departments of curriculum inside of districts, and they start layering curriculum on curriculum on curriculum on curriculum. Mm-hmm. Is this the and, more is better approach? Uh, yeah, and and yeah. It, it never stops uh, yeah. because uh, you probably have 15 academic groups that want their curriculum to be fit into the school day. So now your your question, when do kids have an opportunity to explore their own learning? Hmm. Uh, don't send them to school. Because it's all committed. The time is committed. Yeah. If you're lucky when you go to school, something that the school offers as an elective is going to align to your interest level. But I'll tell you, Matt, uh, I was a middle school and a high school principal. I had plenty of kids that would come to me and say, you know what, Mr. Van Beck, I'm not really interested in uh, woodworking. Hmm. I really want to work on cars. Yeah. Well, we didn't have car mechanic, right? right? And so there they went to woodworking and they sat. Sometimes they would leave. They just say, forget this. This, this, right. this is a waste of my time. Um, so if, if you flip that and you start thinking about beginning asking the young learner, so how do you want to spend your time? Hmm. And you now start building a learning schedule around that answer. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you and I have talked about this before. I'm not convinced that given a couple of days to eat at most a week, uh, when you ask a kid what they want to work on and what they want to learn, uh, I think most kids are going to have an answer. Yeah. It's, well, it's that goes back to, yeah, that goes back to the, the question that I call the, uh, the killer question that I've been encouraging every parent to ask their <laughs> child, which is son or daughter, what are you curious about? What do you want to learn about? Yeah. Um, and I'm well, surprised and- at how, and frequently a, a student has been asked that question. So Yeah, and, and, and what we need to get uh, ready, you know, the answer is not going to be algebra. <laughs> no. Right? <laughs> Unlikely. You know, kids, like, kids aren't going to say, hey. Plato. Yeah, right. I, I, I want to le- le- learn, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to learn algebra. Uh, and that's not to say the kids can't learn algebra. Yeah, like I think all kids should learn algebra. But 
this is the other thing that I think has resonated with parents that doesn't happen a lot inside of schools because school is just filled with curriculum. Yeah. Uh, and there is no, there's very little discretionary curriculum, but the word is negotiation. Hmm. You know, you think about, you know, how people go into work. There are very few employees that have no negotiation rights hmm. on what their workplace is going to look like. Sure. Or even what the their projects culture they're is going to be like, right? Mm-hmm. Very rarely do you ever find a workplace today, right? That operates that way. If they're going to stay in business. Right. That's right. Uh, not so in schools, not so in schools. We'll, we'll send kids in and from eight o'clock to three o'clock, we have their whole learning plan mapped out for them. And guess what? The kid nor the family had any input into that learning plan. Now, I'm going to ask you this question. How invested do you think the kid is going to be with his learning? That's right. I mean, that's the that's the idea of student engagement, right? And, and we know... A st- we can, when we see a child who is engaged, highly engaged, we know it. But how infrequently do we see that in our own you, kids is the question. You can see it. Yeah. I like, like, it's obvious. Like when you walk in, when I walked into classrooms, all I had to do was look at learners' eyes. Yeah. And eyes don't lie. <laughs> right? Yeah. We, you know, eyes will tell you about engagement. And uh, we, we actually used to track that. I, I would walk out and say, you know, you've got 25 out of 30 engaged. Right, right. So, so now, Scott, this is the reason for this show. Now, we've been talking, you know, and, and kind of sharing our own vision and our own thoughts about this. But this show is about talking to parents. And the next episode of this is going to be interviews with parents who are asking me or us questions we're going to talk to the parent to understand their situation, and then we're going to help them resolve their problem in a way that positions them and their child in a new direction. A, a learning plan, essentially, is starting to be developed for the child and family. And so for those that are listening to this show, I, I, I invite you to, again, as I mentioned earlier, to call in or to go to our website, theeducationgame.com. You'll find some information about Scott and I there, but also you'll find a, a, a button to click on to schedule a conversation with myself and or Scott to begin the conversation around how do you help your child through this coronavirus space, but also long-term, how do you make sure your child is engaged, is becoming a individual, is becoming a a self-directed, independent learner. Uh, That is really the ultimate aim of what we're doing. And once that starts to happen, we've seen it, you've seen it, I've seen it, Kids will begin to own their child, their own education in a way that uh, a school could never impose, a parent can never impose on them, and, and ultimately that's what we're after. So with that, uh, I thank you, Scott, for, for- Can I say one more thing, part. Matt? Of course, of course. All right. This is to all the parents out there. No one, no one on the face of the earth knows your child or your children better than you. Don't ever give that uh, power away. Utilize that power. You know what's right for that kid. And Matt and I are here to give you some help. 
Well, Scott, always great, great talking with you. Future episodes will be a lot more parent conversation, but uh, Scott, so glad to have you part of this journey and and partnering up and uh, more to come. Yeah, this is great. Thanks, Matt. Well, I want to thank all of you personally for taking the time to listen to the show today. This is our first episode. Future episodes will have a lot less of me and Scott jabbering and much more about families calling and asking questions and hearing our responses to them. The Education Game is brought to you by Community Health Choice, an insurance company that cares about the entire child and family. Thanks for your support. It's produced by Pottery Studios. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and learn more about the show at theeducationgame.com. And there on the website, you can even schedule time for one of our webinars or, again, clicking the button to schedule time to talk to me and or Scott about your individual educational challenges. We're here to help you. Go to theeducationgame.com to sign up. Our producer for the show is Bo York, and I've been your host, along with Scott Van Beck. I'm Matt Barnes, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you again very soon right here on The Education Game. Take care.